Things that make you go, hmm. All right. Well, welcome to Seacoast. Good to have you here with us again today. We continue our series of the things that make you go, hmm. If you are new with us this morning, that is the way we like to introduce ourselves. <laughs> but it's great to be here with you. Uh, this series is a series where we're going through some of the stories in Scripture, passages in Scripture that sometimes maybe you read them and you look at it and you say, really? Why is that in there? Or what does that mean? And so that's kind of the purpose of this series to explore those, but to even more so, it's not just to understand those stories, but it's because we want to be a community of people who, because of our belief in scripture, because we believe it can help us to know God and to follow his ways, that we want to become people who understand and who work on interacting with scripture in appropriate ways. So we're using these obscure passages to really practice reading the Bible in the way that we believe God wants us to. So that's kind of the point of it, and so we're glad uh, to have you journeying with us through these. It's been a fun series so far. Uh, Yesterday, last night, I got to hang out with actually some of you and a large chunk of people from Encinitas over at a pizza place around the corner as we watched on ESPN the Encinitas All-Stars Little League team. Uh, playing in the Western Regional Finals. It was pretty fun, or not finals, but uh, the tournament. And I had a good time over there watching these kids, these 12-year-olds play baseball. Like, you know, I mean, they're amazing how, how good these kids are. And, and from our own town, it's kind of fun to see them play. But it was fun to be there with the community and watch the all-star team play. And, and I was thinking, you know, growing up, baseball was my sport. I played a lot of baseball, and, and um, I was on basketball teams. Uh, don't know how well I played. But... Um, so that was kind of my sport, and I loved it, and I had the privilege of, of being on a couple all-star teams growing up in baseball. So when I'm watching those kids, it kind of brought me back a little bit. And w- one thing I was thinking about, though, is my life, like seriously, by seven years old, I could name most of the players on teams, and I played baseball all the time. I just loved it. I lived and breathed it. And when I was a junior in high school, I moved from, at the time I was living in St. Louis, and I moved to uh, Washington State. And that year, I was a junior, and I, I introduced myself to the baseball coach and, and went to play baseball. And my tryout, uh, literally, uh, it, it consisted of, we, first of all, it was raining the entire time. So, so we played baseball inside, which is um, in it, not in the kingdom, it was just inside the school. And so first batting, your tryout to bat, we are in this small little uh, weight room, literally, and their pitching machine threw it from about 15 feet away. And you got about 10 swings, and they said, okay, next. I went, okay, this is just how they do it up here. And, and then I was a pitcher for most of my life, and so I said, you know, why not? I'll go pitch. And, uh, and pitching, I've never pitched off a wooden mound inside a gym, but that's how they did it in Washington. Because I never lived in a place that was cursed by God. And so... Um, <laughs> and so... <laughs> my wife was born and raised there, so... Yeah. And so I had pitching, our pitching tryout, I was warming up, and I had their starting catcher was the guy catching for me, and it felt good, and, and, and literally I was pitching really well. I, I had the control and, and movement on the pitches, everything that I needed to have work. The coach finally came over and said, okay, let's see what you've got, and I threw five pitches, and each of the pitches, I, and really, my memory is clear on this, they were very good. They were very good. They had really good movement. They were right where I wanted them and moved it around but kept it all in zone. And he saw five pitches. He goes, okay, thanks. Saw enough. I went, 
oh, awesome. That's all he, because you can, you know, you can know. And then he walked over to me and he said, uh, yeah, you're not a baseball player. And then he left. <laughs> and um, I've never heard anyone say that to me before. And I'm okay. It's okay. It's all right. <laughs> um, and I just remember thinking like, you are so wrong. Like, that's not true. But, and, and at that point, I was a junior, and I thought, you know what, I'm not even going to fight it. And I just said, okay, I guess that's it. And I, and I didn't play. And, and probably looking back, you know, I have all those, you know, retrospect, you know, years later, like, oh, I should have, you know, did like Rocky and trained really hard and played on the opposing team and beat him. But, um, but it, I didn't. And I just kind of, that was it. And, um, and now I will say, okay, here's my human fleshly self coming out. Um, their team went like 3-20 and 20 that year. And I was very happy about that. <laughs> I was just like, I'm so glad you guys aren't any good. <laughs> and, um, and you never wish anything bad on anyone, but I do admit when he no longer coached after that, and I kind of felt better too about that. I shouldn't, but I did because I was, you know, 17. Come on. But um, I was thinking of that. And Sometimes, if you just look at my baseball career in that literally five pitches, it was five pitches and ten swings, that was my tryout. And he looked at that, that's what he saw, and he came up with his conclusion. Right or wrong, that was his conclusion. He started, and he probably already had an idea, and, and he probably looked at me as I walked in and already knew what he was going to see. And so he saw it. And sometimes... When we look at scripture, we do that. And that's a principle when we interpret scripture we want to keep in mind. That we often go to the text with our conclusions made up, and our conclusions are based on things we've heard. Sometimes it's based on the life you've lived. Sometimes it's based on your experiences. And so we'll read a passage and we'll make assumptions or conclusions about God or his ways based on one snapshot or one little story. And so one of the important things to do in Scripture is not just to read one story, but to read the entire Scripture, to read multiple stories so we get the bigger picture. Had this coach said, well, let me see some game film from when you were 12 and you were dominating. Let me see that. And, you know, if, he, if he looked at my stat line from the year before, maybe he'd say, actually, maybe you're better than I thought you were. But he looked at one story. And so... For us today, we are going to look at one story, but don't make all of our conclusions about who God is on this one. Let this start to continue to fill in the gaps of who he is. So that's why it's important for us to study these, and that's why this is why we're, another reason why we're doing this series. But pray with me before we get into today's text. God, we thank you again for today. I thank you for just your goodness. Uh, I thank you for scripture. I thank you that you've left us with something that reveals who you are. And even in some of these stories that are a little bit strange and hard to understand, uh, we thank you for them, that you leave them in there. And it reveals something more about humanity and certainly about you. And so today I pray that you teach us and uh, let this be all about you. And we give you this time now in your name. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings, and we're going to look in chapter 2. If you are new to Scripture, it's about a third way into the Bible. Uh, you could find it in there. Now, a little background. 2 Kings is one of, there's 11 books in the Old Testament that make up the entire narrative or the story of the, the people of God, the nation of Israel. 
And 2 Kings is one of the final books in that narrative. So at this point in their story, is Israel has, uh, is a nation. They were in slavery in Egypt. They got led out of slavery. They wandered through the desert for 40 years. They entered into this land that was what they called the promised land, which is essentially modern-day Israel. And they said, this is the land that God has given to you. So uh, they were living in that land. And once they got to that land, they went through a series of, they began as a nation, being led by uh, prophets. And they went through a period of time called the Judges. And essentially, they were set up to be a theocracy, a nation of people who followed the ways of God, and they were governed by the ways that God wanted them to live. Now, after, in time, they eventually said, hey, we want a kingdom because that's how you run a government. We need a king. So they got a king, a guy named King Saul. Later came King David. And so they went into becoming a kingdom and a dynasty. As they grew, they went through a series of problems when the kings experienced more power, the nation grew, their armies grew. And they got into a cycle that we read about in the books of 1 Kings and 2 Kings. And the cycle essentially was, you have a king, he does evil in the eyes of the Lord, which essentially meant that he didn't follow the ways of God. Often they'd set up and they'd incorporate in religious practices from the other religions and became polytheistic at times, or at the very least disregarded their God, which they called Yahweh. So the king would do evil in the eyes of the Lord, God would allow them to experience a time of punishment, whether it be through other armies or whatever. Then they would say, oh man, we failed. So they'd repent and turn back to God and he would restore them. And they went through this cycle. That kind of sounds like most of our spiritual lives, doesn't it? <laughs> you go through a period where you fail, slip a little bit. You kind of hit the bottom. You say, God, sorry, I'm coming back. And he restores us. And that's what they did just as a nation. And so... They went through this period of time. Now, during the kings, believe me, this is all important. Uh, during the time of the kings, the nation, the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms. One is a northern kingdom. And at this point, when you read about Israel in 2 Kings and 1 Kings, it's talking about the northern kingdom of Israel. Basically, the land uh, north of Jerusalem on up to Galilee. When they talk about the southern kingdom, they call it Judah. And that's where uh, Jerusalem was at and Bethlehem in the, in the desert in the south. And the, the two nations were divided. Eventually, the Assyrians would capture the northern kingdom and they would take them into exile. And then if, and years later, the southern kingdom was also exiled. And then they all returned back as one nation. Okay? You don't need to know when they come back. Right now, here's where they are. They're divided and there's a northern and a southern kingdom. Now, during that time, there was these people called prophets who existed. Prophets were not guys who walked around predicting the future. Although there may be times when they uttered or said something, God has a word about what's going to happen. But it often wasn't about saying, you know, on this year you're going to see an earthquake. That did happen, but not often. But the prophets were used to speak truth, and in this era, directly to the kings and the leadership of the people. So the function of a prophet was to give advice and counsel to the leaders of Israel so that they understood how to live the ways of Yahweh, how to faithfully follow God and live out his ways on earth. So that was a function of the prophets. At the time of 2 Kings, there's a prophet named Elijah, who is known to this day as Israel's greatest prophet ever. If you go up to the region of Haifa or Mount Carmel in, in Israel, 
and talk to the people there, they will still tell you, oh, Eliyahu, he is the greatest prophet ever. So Elijah, they still have hold in regard as the greatest prophet. At this point of what we're going to read today, uh, we're going to see how Elijah, now he's lived a nice long life, he's had a faithful ministry, he has confronted foreign gods and had this showdown with these prophets of this false god called Baal, and a showdown where Yahweh kind of demonstrated that he was the true God. He had a showdown with uh, some of the kings and the king's wife named Jezebel, and just this, he, he's had conflict his entire life. He's kind of known as a warrior prophet who was fighting for the faithfulness of Israel. Now, what we're going to see today is a new character comes in. He's been, on, he's been following Elijah for several years now, and he's known as, his name is Elisha, and he is designated to be the successor. You guys tracking? All right, so Elisha, Elijah. I wish they would have had different names, but they don't. <laughs> so what we're going to see today is the final day of Elijah's life as Elisha is going to come into power. So this is the day when Elisha takes over, and it's apparent that everybody knows all the other prophets who had lesser status knew that Elisha would take over. So today in 2 Kings chapter 2, we're going to see this where Elisha now is in power. And I'm going to start with, we're going to look at verse 23 and 24, and then we're going to back up and read the whole thing in context. But this is to show you what happens when you read something that makes you go, hmm. Okay, so here we go. 2 Kings chapter 2, Elisha now is the prophet for Israel, okay? It says that he went up, talking about Elisha, he went up from there to Bethel. As he was going up by the way, young lads came out from the city, and they mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. <laughs> when he looked behind them and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord, and then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up the 42 lads of their number. Hmm. <laughs> Let's close in prayer and finish up, huh? <laughs> this is one of those passages in Scripture. You're reading it. Everything seems fine. And then you read that and you just have to go, wait, <laughs> what happened? First they start mocking him, calling him bald head. And the next thing you know, there's bears eating them. And this is in the Bible. I would edit it out, seriously. <laughs> but it's here. So when we get to this, we're going to, in just a moment, back up and read the whole story. But what are some questions you have from these verses that we need to answer? What are some things that come to mind? What's that? Yeah, pow yeah they're powerful bears, yeah. And there's just two of them getting 42. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, one of the biggest principles in, in how to avoid getting eaten by a bear, does anyone know the rule? Just, yeah, be, be with someone who's slower than you. Yeah, exactly. So you would think that 42 got eaten by two. You just have to be in the top 40 and you're good to go. But yeah, yeah good question. <laughs> Any other things? Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's the point? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> that's a great question. Seems harsh. Yeah, yeah. I would want to know, is, is this reasonable, God? That seems kind of hard. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, why, why? What's the significance of female bears? Yeah, I don't know. Unless it's just like, you know, when some of 
you moms say, oh, I'm getting all mama bear right now. And so maybe, <laughs> I don't know, it's a good point. We'll look at that in a minute. Any other questions? Yeah. Who are the young lads? Yeah, that's important to know, isn't it? Are they little children running around just saying like, oh, there's, hey, Baldy, and then like bears eat them? That sounds kind of harsh. Sounds harsh. The young lads question is important. Yeah. Any others you want answered? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, why didn't he just ignore him? He's a man of God. They called you Baldy. So what, right? They don't need to be eaten. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Okay. Great, great question. Uh, the question was, is there any cultural significance to the insult that they were going? That was beyond what, you know, that constituted needing to be getting eaten by a bear. <laughs> yeah, it's an important question. Any others? Yeah, did God send the bears or, yeah. Yeah. And then if he did, why? Seriously, God. Good. Okay, what does go up mean? Good. Wow, we don't have time. (laughs) This is good. These are great questions. They're all in here. All right, anything else? So this is what we want to do. When we come across passages like this in Scripture, don't just say, like the coach, with one view, say, oh man, God is really (laughs) short-tempered. Some kids say something, they're kids, and then God kills them. Like, seriously. So, yeah, we want to say, wait, there's got to be something more. So let's find out what more there is. Let's go back to the beginning. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. It came about when the Lord was about to take Elijah by a whirlwind to heaven that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Gilgal, sorry. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. And Elisha said, As the Lord lives and you, you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And and these towns are all in a row, kind of going down the hill towards Jericho. We'll see in a moment. The sons of the prophet who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master from you? And he said, Yes, I know. Be still. So there's these other prophets, and they had schools of prophets back in the day. Don't really know what that constituted, if it was like a class you take to be a prophet or whatever. But what they were doing is there's a group of them, and they all knew that... Elijah was about to be taken to heaven. So the word was out. And Elijah maybe told them. We don't know. And then in Bethel, Elijah said, Elisha, stay here for the Lord has sent me down to Jericho. He said, no, as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. And the sons of the prophet at Jericho came out to Elisha and said, do you know today the Lord will take your master from you? And he said, yes, I know. Now be still. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he said, As the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Again, you see this pattern we've looked at before three times. So when you see something happen three times, it's a test of Elisha. Are you faithful? It takes three tests, and that's it. There's not going to be a fourth one, because in Hebrew you only need three. So he tests his faithfulness three times. And what Elisha essentially is saying here is, No, I've been with you. I've been learning from you. I am faithful to you. I'm not going to leave. So the 50 sons of the men, uh, 
Now fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Now they went down to the Jordan River. So they're up in the hill country, you know, Gilgal. They went to a town called Bethel, down to Jericho, which is right near the Dead Sea, and then they went to the Jordan River. And by the way, this is the same path that Israel took when they entered the Promised Land. I'm just going the other way. Verse 8, Elijah took his mantle, which is a, not an overcoat, but it's like a scarf or a, a wrap or something that goes over the overcoat. He's accessorizing here. And so it's his mantle. He folds it together and he struck the waters and they were divided here and there. So the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Does that sound? Have you ever heard that before? When Israel came over on dry ground. So they went, they, they crossed over. Elijah said to Elisha, ask anything. Ask what I shall do for you before I'm taken up. And Elisha says, Please, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Now when you read that, does anyone think, that's a little greedy? <laughs> I, I totally think that sounds greedy. But, uh, but what it's actually referring to, saying a double portion is not let twice your amount of power come to me. Double portion is the language that is given to the firstborn son, the inheritance, they get a double portion. So when he says, I want a double portion, what he's saying is, I am ready to be your successor. Please let me be the prophet now who stands in your place and takes over. So it has nothing to do with the amount of power. It has to do with being the next in line after Elijah. And, and this is something that was already promised to him uh, years before by Elijah. So he's just reconfirming what he wants. And he says in verse 10, you've asked for a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be for you. But if not, it will not be so. So as they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire which separated them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. I want you just to take note here and, and have this. Uh, circle this, Elijah went up. Just that went up idea. We're going to get back to it. And Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. They took hold of his own clothes. He tore them in two pieces, which is a sign of mourning, saying, My, my master is gone. He took a hold of the mantle that Elijah let fall from the ground. And he returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. So what's happening here in Hebrew essentially is God somehow uses this whirlwind and takes Elijah up and he's no more. And the mantle that falls to the ground is symbolic of the power now past, essentially saying, you take it. You're now in charge, Elisha. You are now the prophet to Israel to keep the kings of Israel following Yahweh and his ways, to keep us faithful, to remind us that God is with us. So Elisha takes it. He's standing by the Jordan River. And in verse 14, he took the mantle, he struck the waters and said, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had also struck the waters, they were divided here and there, and Elisha crossed over. He's not asking, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He takes the mantle, says, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He strikes the water and they part, essentially saying, kind of like, God, okay, if I really am in charge now, are you with me? And he strikes the water and they part. And the prophets, it said there's 50, remember, from earlier, they're watching this. So what has just happened to those 50 they just had confirmation that, oh, Elisha now clearly has Yahweh leading him. Okay? Now, I know this whole story makes you go, hmm, but we'll get back to the bears in a minute. <laughs> now, when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him, they said, the spirit of Elijah now rests on Elisha. 
And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground. In other words, we know Yahweh is with you. And they said, Behold now, there is with you fifty servants. Please let them go and search for your master. Perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him on some mountain or into a valley. And he said, You shall not go. When they urged him until he was ashamed, he said, Fine, send them. And they sent therefore fifty men, and they searched for three days but did not find them. By the way, I really don't know why that's in there. (laughs) As I studied it, this little is a weird passage where they say, Since Elijah got taken up, maybe he came down somewhere. Maybe that whirlwind just sucked him up and laid him on the mountain somewhere. We'll go find him. And Elisha says, no, 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 he's gone. God took him. And they kept asking, so he said, fine, go look. And they came back and said, no, actually, he, he didn't, he, he wasn't there. Okay, so <laughs> there's, there, there could be more to that. That's some foreshadowing and typing, but we don't have time. It doesn't change the story. So where are we now? Okay, verse 18. They returned to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said, didn't I say, don't go? Now, verse 19. The men of the city of Jericho said to Elisha, Behold now, the situation of the city is pleasant, as the Lord sees, but the water here is bad, and the land is unfruitful. And he says, Bring me a new jar and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. He went out to the spring and threw salt in the water and said, Thus says the Lord, I've purified these waters. There shall not be from here any death or unfruitfulness any longer. Now let me ask you, if you're going to take water that is undrinkable, and by the way, Jericho is the, the city that's built the lowest city on earth. It's right near the Dead Sea. It's filled with minerals. Uh, it, and so the groundwater even can have all those minerals in it. It was undrinkable at the time. If you want to make water drinkable and usable, would you throw salt in the water? (laughs) Okay, you don't. It's very counterintuitive, even in the ancient world. You wouldn't do that. Now, this is a clear thing. Elisha is doing something that makes no human sense to do to purify the waters. The reason why, in this point, and this happens often in Scripture, is God is showing him, like, this has nothing to do with human ways. I'm going to make these waters clean. Now, there's something else we need to know, and it fits in with the story. Some of you, if you're familiar, may recall, if you're not, I'm going to tell you, but years before, when Israel went into Jericho, for the first time, they won the battle in Jericho. And Joshua proclaims something. He says, anyone who rebuilds these walls will be cursed. Essentially, this city is cursed, and it shouldn't be inhabited anymore. So he already said, hey, no one should live in the city again or they'll be cursed and what they'll lose is their firstborn. Now in 1 Kings chapter 16, for those of you who like the background, just eat it up. The rest of you, put it on pause. So uh, 1 Kings chapter 16, we see Jericho has been rebuilt and the leader who rebuilds it loses a family member, his son. Just as the curse that Joshua said for the city will happen when you rebuild the city. So, but they still rebuilt it, and, part, and he paid the price for that, losing his son. Now, there's still a curse on the city, but Elisha here removes the last remnant of this curse. He said, now your water has been purified, which to them understood God made this place uninhabitable and unfruitful. But Elisha's act right here removes the curse that Joshua put on the city. Now, in modern world, when we're talking about cursing and removing a curse, we're just going, what? Yeah, okay. This is very real to the ancient world. But what essentially is happening is God, their creator, Yahweh, through Elisha, is removing a punishment and a curse given to the city. He's allowed Elisha to be the one to remove the curse. 
It's very significant that this is really his first act. The first act is to part the water. The second is to remove a curse and bring life to this city that didn't have the ability to have abundant life. And Jericho went on to be a very prosperous city. By the time of Jesus, it was a resort town, the place to be. It happens here, and it's very significant. The people who understood their history would know that what just happened is God removed a curse and he used Elisha. His presence is here once again. Yahweh is now here with us and our people who are here. Okay, so clearly what we've seen is the water parts. He removes a curse. God is empowering Elisha. Now, verse 23, let's read it again. He went up from there to Bethel. As he was going up by the way, the young lads came from the city, mocked him, and said to him, Go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. And he looked behind him, he cursed it, he cursed them in the name of the Lord, and two female bears came out of the woods and tore up that number. Now, any different observations about those verses in light of the background that you notice? Any new light on there that you see? What's that? Uh, they, they did, yeah, but that's been removed now. Yeah, there's new life now, so. Uh, yeah, there's some, there is definitely, there's a play on, there's, he's giving life, and now you're going to see life taken away. So yeah, yeah. But the, the curse is now removed in Jericho, so it's showing his power. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, so there's definitely God's powers that, and he's, affirming his, God is affirming his, uh, his, that he's with Elisha through this act. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, so the people are experiencing the blessings and through that they know like, okay, Elisha's our guy. Don't, you know, I'm clearly with him. He's not to be messed with. Yeah. Definitely. Any other different observations now? Yeah. Right. Definitely. So, so you, you picked up on that, on the go up, go up. Let's just stop and look at it. Let's look at the curse or the uh, insult that they gave. So Elisha now is walking and they say, go up, you bald head, go up. Let's, just, let's get the first one out of the way. Okay, baldness. Um, <laughs> it is not a curse to be bald, okay? And in the ancient world, it was okay if you were a prophet and you were bald. Someone in the first, uh, in the first service was asking about that and uh, had vested interest in the answer. But um, <laughs> So there was nothing wrong in the ancient world about being bald. But it was a common, in the ancient world, it was known as that could be used as an insult. Like, hey, Baldy. So, but what do they say? They say, go up, Baldy, go up. Now, it had been known by this point, a couple days later, who knows, that Elijah just went up in a whirlwind to heaven. So the fact that they're saying, go up, Baldy, go up, the Baldy is almost irrelevant, except for there's maybe one thing about it. But the go up is the insult. 
Because they're saying, well, Elijah clearly had the power of God. Elijah clearly was, was a prophet of Yahweh. So go up, Bali. Go ahead. Go up. Who are they making fun of here? Who are they mocking? Yeah. This really doesn't have to do with Elisha at this point. What they're saying is these lads, and we'll get to who the lads are, is they're saying, yeah, we don't, yeah, right. We're done with Yahweh and all of that he's about. We're done with you crazy prophets telling us to follow him. We're done with that. So go up. If you're, if you're with Yahweh, then go up. And it's the same language of going up in the whirlwind. Show us that you're with Yahweh. Go ahead, do it. Bet you can't do it. Now the baldy, it's either just a simple insult or Elijah was often described in Scripture. Anyone know how he was described? He was described as a very hairy man. So it is likely that either Elisha is bald, but I, you, some people say he was, his head was covered. He might not have been. It was just an insult. But I think what's happening here is it's in, Elisha is everything Elijah was not. Elijah was this hairy man. He was this crazy, scary man. No one would go against him because the last time some false prophets did, they all got torched. They're testing the new guy who doesn't look anything like Elijah. He's different. He's bald. Elijah is described as very hairy. Why would the Bible tell us those facts if it didn't matter? So they're saying, you are not Elijah. We're not listening to you. If you think you have that power, go up in the whirlwind. Show us. Now, the young lads. The word here, they use two different words in the same sentence. The first one is often can be used for teenagers or just for a younger generation. The second time they use it, it's much more broad. It could be children. It could just be young people. Most likely what's happening here is I seriously doubt it's a group of a preschool class just walking, you know, holding on the rope and saying, hey, Baldy. <laughs> it's probably not what's going on here. What is likely happening is this is representing a younger generation who's saying we are done with this Yahweh stuff. Here's another prophet. We are done. We're done. We're tired of hearing it. And Bethel often was the center of these conflicts. So he utters a curse. And by the way, just really quickly, the word curse here is not the same for putting, setting someone aside for destruction. Sometimes they'll be destroyed, but there's a word specifically to say, I now curse you so you'll be destroyed. He doesn't use that word. It's basically to speak poorly of some sort of curse to the Lord and essentially say it's God's thing now. So the answer is said, why didn't he have more patience? Why did he get so angry? Probably Elisha here wasn't that angry. He just says, God, do you see what they're doing? Are they mocking you? Are they mocking what were your ways? And then two female bears. I don't know why they're female bears. <laughs> I'm not sure the significance of that. I haven't found anything that makes a difference. But... All I'm thinking is, you know, you don't want to make a mama bear mad. That's what I'm thinking. But so two female bears um, came out of the woods. And yes, there used to be bears in this region of the world. They're called Syrian bears, similar to California black bears, brown bears. And they tore up 42 lads. Why 42? I don't know. Again, 42 doesn't have a number of significance in Scripture, except for the principle I gave you earlier, if you want to avoid a bear attack, be faster than the person next to you. 
what's clearly being shown here is this is not just some random, oops, you stumbled upon a bear. Because that happened in this region. If you weren't careful, and you've ever been up to Yellowstone and walked through the woods, and, you know, I love those walks, but all the walks start with a big sign saying there's bears, don't get eaten, you know. <laughs> so that happened in this region. So if it's just one or two people, they'd say, oh, yeah, random, they were making fun of the prophet and two of them died. But 42 died or got torn up. So we know that what it's saying is this is not usual. And again, in the ancient world, using animals, they, they had no problem believing that God could use something from nature to communicate what he wanted to communicate. We're not, we don't have time to get there, but in 1 Kings chapter 13, you want to read another story that makes you go, hmm? There's a prophet of God, a follower of Yahweh, who disobeys God on the same road, right next to Bethel, the same area, and he gets eaten by a lion. <laughs> so, there's a precedent there. <laughs> I would not use that road. That's just all I'm saying now. But so, in each case, it was God communicating to his people, listen to me. So the story really becomes, this story is a story of Elijah passing his power on to Elisha. But it's more than that. It's about God saying, I am still with my people. It's about Yahweh saying, it doesn't matter who else is here or who's on the throne. I am still God and I will be consistent through the ages and you still need to listen to me. You still need to follow me. I have not left you, Israel. There's a new guy. He looks different than the old guy. But my word rests and power is on him because I want you to turn to me. It's not time to give up, younger generation. Because I haven't left. And it's not about mocking a prophet. It's about mocking God and his ways. We learn in Galatians chapter 6, it says, God cannot be, will not be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. Our God saying, no, my people, Israel, I'm still journeying with you. So what can we learn today? I'm going to ask the worship team to start making their way up. There's a couple things that I think we see in here. First, let's start with us. The first thing to notice is that God uses the people and the methods that he sees fit. <laughs> He's going to use the hairy man Elijah, and he can use the bald man Elisha, and that's fine. Because God can use who he wants to use. Nobody is unqualified to communicate the ways of God and to live out the ways of God. He can use you and me to accomplish his will. If there's anything to be, get some encouragement personally for us today is that you are qualified to be a follower of God. And God wants to use you in your life situation. Second is this. He uses different methods. A practical kind of bearing on this is it's very easy for us to look around maybe at other churches even other ministries, and say, oh, I can't believe that God, they're doing that, or that they think that's the way that God wants them to go, and we can question. I, I, I remember for a while, I used to kind of be critical of mega churches, you know, the 25,000 people churches, and what they would do to get people to show up at church, and I'm like, that's, that's cheating. Until you stop and see that thousands of people are accepting Christ, and you just kind of go, oh, who am I to mock what God's doing in someone else's heart and life? 
I learned that well when I was a part of a church plant, and we were very, very small, and we were down the street of a church of 25,000. <laughs> and I thought, they must have looked at us and said, those guys are idiots, they can't figure it out, they only have a few dozen people, what's going on? But God can use that small church, that big church. God can use the baldy, the hairy guy. And God wants to use all of these different things to accomplish his will of making his name known and drawing people into relationship with him. Some of you uh, have, have a heart for that, uh, our international students. Great ministry. Some of you look at Next Level, our sports camp starting tomorrow, and you say, I don't want to be anywhere near children. And if that's your heart, good. We don't want you near our children, by the way. But some of you have, that is your ministry, your calling. God wants you there. Don't think that's not a great calling or that he can't use you. So that's the personal side, or the individual side. Now here's the other thing. The other thing to learn here is what we want to learn about God, and that's every time we read scripture, that he is faithful to his people. He wanted Israel to know that he'd be faithful, that he was faithful. He wasn't leaving them. You know, this morning, we have brothers and sisters in Christ all over the globe who are worshiping the same God. But we have some brothers and sisters in Christ today that are suffering greatly for their faith. Some in East Asia. Many in the Middle East today. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who lived in a city called Mosul in Iraq and they were told last week, you need to leave or convert to Islam or you will lose your head. We will kill you. And the reports are that everybody left, every Christian left, except for one who she was disabled and unable to leave. Those are brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you think this morning they're wondering if God is faithful? If He is there? In Israel, 80% of the people who are Christians, so the Christians who live in Israel, 80% of them are Palestinian Christians. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are in the crosshairs of two faiths, two religions that really don't like them. They're in danger. They're the most persecuted group in Israel, are Christians. Our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are wondering, is God there? Now, most of them are very firm in their belief that he is there, and they worship, and they celebrate because they have that belief. You know, even us today, we don't experience that kind of persecution, but sometimes in Encinitas, we might wonder, God, are you still there? Are you in our community? Are you in our nation? Are you in our leadership? And God's reminding us that he is faithful. So we're going to do something here before we end our time in worship. So I'm going to ask you in just a moment, I'm going to have you turn around and get in clusters. Now I know I just made half of you very uncomfortable. Sorry, introverts. Um, but I'm going to ask you to stand up in just a moment and turn around and just anyone who's near you, it can be a cluster of anywhere from 1 to 10, it's fine. And if you're comfortable just by yourself, that's fine. But we're going to take just a moment. I want one person from each of those little clusters to take a moment and to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that they today could be reaffirmed that Yahweh has not left them, that his presence is there and it's known. And pray for them, that we stand with them today, letting them know that over here we care about them. And we believe that God is faithful. 
So we're going to do that in just a moment. So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand and cluster around and find one person who's bold enough to pray in a group. Again, if you want to be alone, that's fine. And stay where you are. We're going to stay standing. We're going to end our time with one song after a moment of prayer. So go ahead and take a moment together.